Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett, and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. Before we begin, could you please ensure that all digital devices are turned to silent? Uh, we're not expecting a fire alarm, but should one sound, please exit through this door here on your left. Um, and we will take questions after today's lecture, um, but please hold them until the end. For today's event, Charles Stewart and the Art of Illustration, we will be thinking about how an artist goes about illustrating a story. To, dis to discuss this, we are joined by exhibition curator Amanda Jane Doran, who was the archivist at Punch magazine for 13 years and a consultant to the Illustrated London News Archive. She is a founding trustee of the Cartoon Museum and an expert in 19th century illustrated books and magazines. In addition to Charles Stewart, Black and White Gothic, she has curated many exhibitions of Victorian and 20th century graphic art. Joining her today in conversation is the former editorial director of the Folio Society, Sue Bradbury, who trained as a teacher and taught for three years in Spain before joining the Folio Society as a temporary membership secretary in 1973. This showed form on the part of the society as at the time Sue couldn't type. Over the next 37 years, she worked as a production assistant, picture researcher, and general editor until 1984, when she became the editorial director. This was also the same year in which Charles Stewart came into the life at the Folio Society. Sue retired at the end of 2009, and in the following year, she was awarded an OBE for her services, services to the publishing industry. Since then, she has been researching a collection of letters between three pre-Raphaelite period artists, and her biography of them was published in 2012. So please join me in welcoming today's guests. Good afternoon. Thanks very much for coming. Um, Sue and I have been working on the exhibition next door for the past six months or so. And um, over this period, we've had a lot of time to think about how artists work and how they work as illustrators. Um, we think that a successful illustrator needs to have a particular kind of intelligence and sensitivity to literature and text, um, as well as being able to express those ideas um, visually. And um, in a way, Sue's, Sue was uh, fortunate that she, she worked with Charles Stewart very, very closely um, from 1984, when, when she first saw the, um, the drawings for Uncle Silas. Um, and the other extraordinary thing that we discovered was that the, the birth of the Folio Society in 1947 is actually resonant for all sorts of reasons. Um, the Folio Society still exists to, today to marry up the greatest literature with the most interesting and innovative illustrators. So I thought we should start really by asking Sue how the Folio Society came into being and uh, the significance of that 1947 date. Yes, well, it was the brainchild of a very young man um, who uh, got interested in private press work when he was still a schoolboy and worked at Golden Cockerell Press in the um, summer holidays and started to buy Kelmscott leaves, um, leaves from Kelmscott books when he could afford them. And uh, had the war not intervened, would very probably have gone into um, uh, the private press world. But the war changed 
a lot of things. And one of the things, the austerity measures that came in during the war, and so books, you know, printed on oatmealy paper, no illustrations, no thoughts to typography or binding, uh, made him feel that he didn't want to make um, expensive books for a few rich people. What he wanted to do was to uh, apply private press standards to commercially produced books. And everybody thought he was potty. Um, though, in fact, after the war, there was this resurgence in the democratisation of the arts, which kind of culminated, I suppose, in the um, uh, Festival of Britain in 1951. And uh, Alan, Alan Bennett described uh, you know, the way in which colour came flooding back and you know, even um, the... the, the the, the writers, best-known writers, people like Dylan Thomas and Christopher um, Hampton used huge... Um, Christopher Fry used language in a very, very kind of rich way. So he said it was almost as if language itself was coming off the ration. And I think there was that sense of... Um, you, could, you could really spread yourself artistically. And it's, it's funny, though, isn't it, that with, um, with Uncle Silas, um, yeah. that it, it was actually initially developed between 1946 and 1947 yes. for a completely different publisher for the Bodley Head mm-hmm. and that Charles Stewart had also been um, adversely affected by what had happened during the war um, and his career as a possible theatrical designer um, had, had, had to take a complete back seat because he, as a conscientious objector he was forced into whatever work the government required him to do yeah. and he trained to be um, a, Red Clo- a Red Cross um, sort of operative, um, really literally picking up the pieces after the air raids began in 1940. But the, the, these extraordinary drawings yeah. that we have next door, um, they sort of reached their... They'd sort of been simmering away in Stuart's imagination for four or five years. But it was between 1946 and 1947 that, um, that, that he produced his finished drawings for the bodily head. But exactly as you were saying, Sue, um, the book publishing industry at the time was so restricted in terms of the type of publishing, the type of printing, and certainly fine art printing, yeah. was so expensive that um, th- that was the very reason the bodily head had to abandon publishing Uncle Silas. They simply couldn't afford the reproduction costs. They tried, they tried all sorts of different ways of reproducing Charles Stewart's drawings, but at, in, at the end of the day, it was just going to cost them too much money. So, I mean, it's a wonderful yeah. cyclical result for Stewart that he ended up being published by you 40 years later. Yes, um, serendipity, mm. <laughs> really. <laughs> so, and, of course, he went on to do work on other projects for you, didn't he? He did, too? yeah. Well, you know, the way, it, the way it happened was very strange because um, we, ha- we built up over the years after the Velio Society was started, we built up a tremendous... We kept everything for a start. You wouldn't be able to do that now. But we built up an enormous library of um, artwork... And in 1984, we thought it would be a good idea to have an exhibition. We'd never done that, having a look at what we'd got. And um, we had it at the Royal Festival Hall. And because we wanted to kind of encourage, we wanted to open up to other illustrators who we might not have thought of and who might not have thought of us, we extended a sort of general invitation. And while we were putting the exhibition up, this exquisite... um, elderly gentleman with white hair and rather beautifully cut tweeds came in with a plastic bag full of these 
wonderful, wonderful drawings. And we looked at them, we thought, why haven't we seen them, you know? And if this book, Uncle Silas, which I ashamed to say I'd never even heard of, never mind read, is half as good as the illustrations, we have to publish it. And so that was the beginning, really. And um, it's funny because I remember Charles as quite a sort of bland figure, very upright, moved beautifully. He'd been a ballet dancer, rather unlikely, in a former life, and had danced in the corps de ballet at Covent Garden, so no slouch. Um, But what I'd forgotten, and I didn't realise until... I saw the photograph of him in the exhibition was that he has devil's eyebrows. <laughs> and, of course, that sort of like was like something slotting into place after all these years. He certainly enjoyed aspects of the supernatural. And, all the time, um, yes. the, the third book that Charles Stewart um, worked on for Sue, um, I think he even helped devise the rather creepy title because uh, it was an anthology of ghost stories. Yes. And he insisted on the addition of horrid tales. I believe, yeah, and other he? horrid and tales. And other horrid tales. Yes. And I, um, I was in the fortunate position a few months ago. I went to have a, have a look round his studio in uh, cold grey Galloway, as he described it. And um, his studio is still intact. His niece mm. owns the house, and um, many, many of his drawings and his possessions are still in the studio, which was beautifully arranged, but sort of festooned with rather strange objects. Tiny little bird skulls, um, some puppets that looked as though they were sort of devil dolls or something. I mean, Charles was born in the Philippines. The full size. Outside. Oh, yes. Yeah. I did include the full size in the exhibition. I had to... There were so many strange objects in his studio. Mm. I thought the bird skulls might just be a step too far. Mm. And there was actually a human skull as well. That was several steps too far. Mm. Um, but uh, he, he, he began life in the Philippines, Charles. And as mm. a child was very sickly indeed. Um, his parents arranged for him to come back to England because they were really very worried that he wasn't going to survive in that tropical climate. On the way back to Scotland, his nurse took him to Japan where the air was supposed to be better. And they were so scared that he wasn't even going to make it back to Scotland that they actually took him to Mount Fuji where prayers were said for his recovery. And I, I, I came, his niece told me this anecdote that years later, uh, at an exhibition at the British Museum, he'd seen a woodcut of Mount Fuji and just dissolved into tears. And um, that really set something off in my head and about his interest in the supernatural, really, and his interest in spirituality, but also in this sort of rather darker side, which mm. I think is what we see exemplified so well um, in the drawings for Uncle Silas. Well, but he I... insisted on including in his ghost story book um, stories, quite rightly, as it, stories by like Cadio Hearn, which are set in Japan. Mm-hmm. And they're ghost stories too. The Japanese have a huge history of ghost story writing, and uh, so he included some of those in his ghost story book. And that certainly yeah. matches up with the contents of his studio, which, yeah. as I say, included... Um, beautiful carved fans and um, I, I say these rather strange puppets that mm. looked as though they could well have been from the Philippines but that was certainly one direction that his imagination went off mm. into um, and it, it, I think Charles is such an extraordinary artist in so many ways and Sue's already mentioned his ability as a ballet dancer mm. um, as a young man he was very talented, very talented performer, um, as well as uh, a, a quite quite um, extraordinary draftsman. And his training at the Byam Shaw um, really prepared him as, to work as a draftsman rather than as a painter. And um, he studied under um, F. Ernest Jackson, 
um, who has connections with the Royal Academy here, and a large collection of his works is held at the Ashmolean Museum. So Charles was sort of poised, um, again, you know, during those wartime years, to sort of take off in one one direction as a graphic artist or theatrical designer. That was his preferred choice. But the war, just like with the failures, brought everything to an end and completely changed the direction of his life. So he started working on the drawings of Uncle Silas during bombing raids, and well, in fact, between bombing raids, really. He said said that the place where uh, they were based in Battersea was a sort of Victorian Gothic house, and he used to go to a tower. You know, it was a typical Charles, you know, find the right atmosphere and then recover it. Gothic inspiration. (laughs) And then draw it, and uh, that was his inspiration very much. And did he show you the preparatory drawings? Because the 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 other thing that, uh, as working in the collections department here at the Royal Academy. We don't just have the drawings by Charles that are on display. He made four, five, six, sometimes ten studies and other sketches that support every single one of the finished illustrations. And most of them are more finished than anything you or I would do (laughs) before you even start. He was such a meticulous artist, wasn't he? Completely meticulous. And I think one of the very few artists illustrating um, since sensational or ghost story books who actually, for whom more is less. You know, usually the more you, uh, you, you can overdo it, you can, you can be too literal and it becomes less and less easy to generate the kind of unease that um, you need to do with ghost stories. But he somehow sort of went through that sort of literal barrier and came out the other side with these very, very dark, very detailed, very uh, haunted images um, and I think, I think they're extraordinary. I mean, I remember talking to people about, in my young life at the Folio Society, all art, artists like Barnett Friedman and artists like, um, uh, well, people like Peter Forster, and having the conversation about you can't, you know, the minute you get literal, you've had it. And I do remember when I was a child, my sister and I, uh, we used to take girl comic. I think we were allowed to have girl comic. And they ran a sort of strip cartoon of Jane Eyre in it. And um, the end of one week was the wedding being interrupted. And the last picture on, on the page was of Mr. Rochester standing by the tower door with his hand on the handle saying, um, prepare yourselves, gentlemen, the sight is not a pleasant one. Well, we went through the whole of the next week saying, prepare yourself, gentlemen, the sight. And the sight, when it came, was so disappointing <laughs> that it kind of, uh, you know, it sort of informed what we, look, what we end up looking for, you know, in illustration forevermore. So you didn't realise that, that was going to help you, guide you in your... No, in your, so not in my future in life, future. no. So, so when, you're, when you were working with illustrators, so, I mean, the initial project with Charles, he sort of presented you with his vision, and so he'd yeah. already chosen the episodes in the novel that he wanted to illustrate. But, yes. But, I mean, is that, that, presumably that's quite unusual. I mean, does it usually happen the other way around? Do you suggest the, the, the portion of the text, or does the artist read the text and then decide themselves? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we're a, pu- a book publisher, an illustrated book publisher. We're not a private, uh, we're not a livre illustré publisher. So normally the text would come first, but quite often it's been suggested by the artist, because of the artist, you mentioned Quentin Blake. Uh, Quentin Blake is so voraciously well-read, and one of the things that he liked about working for the Folio Society was it gave him a chance to do grown-up, in inverted commas, grown-up books. And he, he, he 
he suggested to us, again a book I'd never heard of at the time, um, Voyages to the Moon and the Sun by Cyrano de Bergerac. Well, I thought Cyrano de Bergerac was an invention of Rostong, you know, with a big nose, <laughs> quarrelsome Gascon. But he was a real person, and he wrote what is essentially the first science fiction book. Um, and it includes things like how you get to the moon, and it has an early example of a Sony Walkman and a Dormobile and various other things which have come to pass so many years later. And um, Quentin just longed to, to draw them, and he did. It also includes the best, something we could all learn from, actually, which is how, how to conduct a war on the moon with these two tribes who were always constantly fighting. But the way they fought was that they selected, each selected one person to, to stand up and battle for them. And those two people would sh stand and shout insults at each other until one of them fell over. <laughs> and I thought, we could do something with that, couldn't we? I mean, we could... You don't think that's the Houses of Parliament then, really, <laughs> rather, than, rather than warfare? But you, you mentioned Quentin. I know another artist who I'm sure the audience would be really interested to hear about. One in your early days at the Folio mm. Society you came into contact with was Edward Borden. Absolutely, yes. Um, Edward Borden. Normally, I mean, I ought to explain that I'm no expert in this field because I was the editorial director, not the production director. But sometimes, because of what we were doing one became very close to the artists. Thank goodness it was much more fun to be able to be involved in both. But in the case of Edward, uh, Edward Borden, who was by then well into his 80s, um, we were doing an edition of T. Lawrence's Revolt in the Desert, which was a kind of pre-viewed pre, pre um, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and it was published in advance of Seven Pillars of Wisdom, though it was written afterwards, I think. Anyway, it was regarded as being a bit, bit more acceptable and interesting at the time, and called Revolt in the Desert. And we discovered that Edward Borden had done, he, he was there in, in the desert during the Second World War and had done a great many drawings of the wadis and the places that T. Lawrence mentions. So he brought in his sketchbooks and... We, he and I sat on the floor of my office going through everything and deciding what to use. And at the end of it, he looked at me and he had these very, very penetrating blue eyes, absolutely ice blue eyes, and he said, I've always wanted to do The Hound of the Baskervilles. you better catch me before I pop off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we did. <laughs> so wow. those were the nice uh, stories. And... And we haven't sort of missed out on artists either. I mean, I, we don't make too much distinction between artists and illustrators. And uh, Frederick Raphael's daughter, Sarah, who last died young, was a very, very, very fine artist. And father and daughter did um, a book of Greek myths retold by Freddie and illustrated by Sarah, which is probably one of the things I'm most proud of. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I remember one of the other things that you mentioned, uh, sort of characteristics that you, you felt Charles had and some mm. of the other illustrators that you've worked with had, including Posey Simmons, yes. was, it was um, a sort of mischief. So you're, you're yes. not, you're, you do subscribe to the belief that uh, if, if an illustration is comic, it can still be art. Oh, yes, absolutely. Why not? And do you, So you, yes. do you think Charles had that? Although, obviously, his drawings are far more um, serious and dramatic in a way rather than comic um, but um, I think there's a sort of mischievous eccentricity 
about mm. Charles and, you know, it enabled him to go on and do Mistress Masham's Repose, which is in many ways a very, very different book. It's a book by T.H. White, um, which you may know. Um, it's not as well known as it should be, I think, um, in which a small girl inherits Malplacket Hall, which is based on Stowe School, which is where T.H. White taught. Um, and... A, a, a wicked governess and an even wickeder vicar try to do her out of it and she discovers um, that there are Lilliputians living in the grounds that after, after Gulliver that's where they ended up they took refuge in the grounds of Stowe and, um, and it's a wonderful wonderful story about how Maria triumphs with the help of the Lilliputians the Lilliputians are hugely entertaining um, and he took up, took up that cudgels with that one, um, which has a lot of mischief in it. Yes, and the, and the, and the, um, the drawings that he did for you, they're, they're beautiful watercolours, aren't yes, they? They're quite yes. different in, yeah. in, uh, in style. I mean, they, underneath they have their similarities, but um, they're, they're, they're much more sort of nuanced, aren't they? And they, they are, and that's oh. partly because his eyesight was beginning. You know, he was, again, then 79, yes. um, and he felt his eyesight wasn't as good as it had been when he did the Uncle, Uncle Silas, Silas ones. Yeah. So, so, so was, that, was, he, was that published very close to the time of Uncle Silas as well with the, from the Folio Society? Yes, not long afterwards, a couple of years, I think. So it's quite extraordinary how, how his career sort of was a complete resurgence for Charles, wasn't it? Yeah. And he'd, he'd been um, tied up for more than 20 years with family responsibilities. Mm. Um, and in a way, you yes. were able to allow his work to come to fruition. I mean, if, if Uncle Silas hadn't been published, um, his work yeah. would probably have been completely forgotten. Well, it might have been. I mean, I think that's a horrible thought. I, I told Amanda Jane that m m my husband... I have relations in Galloway, so my husband and I used to go and call on uh, Charles when he lived in Glen Harvey, which was a wonderful, wonderful house, long, low house on the edge of a river with a little mountain beyond. And the garden was... A, a sort of series of arbors and um, walkways, walks, all created out of old um, bits of trees, really, <laughs> and very, very spiky and very, very gothic. Um, these pavilions and these walkways and these arbors. And when we went, the last time we went, it was winter. And everything was rhymed with frost. I mean, it was like if you had set out to create uh, your own stage design, you couldn't have done it better. And my husband came, up, came, came out um, and said, do you know, he said, there isn't a single picture or bibelot or object in that house that I don't covet. <laughs> so, they're exquisite, well, I mean, things. even what yeah. was left when I visited, yes. and when I showed you the photographs, and, uh, and Nick Savage, the um, head of c collections here, who'd also visited Charles, mm. he said, oh no, it's completely different, like, you know, the furniture's in mm. different angles, and, but the objects were Charles's, yes. and they, yes. every single one mm. was chosen. And the fascinating thing, looking at the Uncle Silas drawings and the extra drawings that he did for you in the 1980s, yes. was that he used his collection of curios in the mm. little end pieces, the little tiny drawings that are in one of the cases next door. He used all these objects around him. His whole life, in a way, was almost like a sort of stage set. Mm. And I think part of the extraordinary um, intensity and drama of, of the drawings for Uncle Silas were very much influenced by his work as a dancer and his, his work, mm. his, the work that he was coveted as a stage designer. Yes, it's true, it's true. 
but um, it's it's um, as well as the established artists that you worked with. I mean, the Folio Society also have a wonderful reputation for bringing artists on and spotting young talent and um, perhaps you'd like to say just a little bit about some other artists and the sort of connections between art colleges and, and the illustrated work. This time not so hot on. But we did... <laughs> but it, was, with, it was partly through Quentin Blake, It was through it? Quentin, yeah. yes. That we did set up a Royal College of Art um, um, a, a, a prize, an award, um, which the Royal College of Art rather insisted that was restricted to them but it still meant we got a lot of they, they did open it to all departments so we got a lot of entries from quite interesting departments like the natural history department or even the um, um, textiles um, so, so that opened up a lot of probably areas of art that we hadn't thought of and we had that every year and for, for quite a long time, 10 years I think and the winner was always given a book to do, a folio book to do, but in fact it wasn't always just the winners so people like Paul Cox for example we discovered um, through the RCA and was, uh, he was taught by Quentin Blake he was taught he? by Quentin Blake, uh, how, yes because he did Woodhouse didn't he for the photo he must he did. run into many volumes he did, he did Woodhouse, we got a letter this is where you have to be careful, he did Woodhouse beautifully I have to say, but he, there were a lot of them and um, we got a letter from one of our elderly members um, saying, pointing out very courteously, it was like a Charles letter, actually, extremely courteous, but extremely precise, saying that um, some of the draw the, one of the drawings, there were too many buttons on a waistcoat, Good and grief. that you wouldn't have had, you know, uh, if the correct, the, the, the um, costume was not quite correct. And the letter said, the wonderful line in the letter said, Although I have never had a butler myself, I have moved on the fringes of the butler belt. <laughs> so we sort of kind of... Charles, fortunately, Paul thought that was funny too. Oh, good. Well, Charles would never have made that mistake. No, never, no, um, and, no. And Sue at the Folio Society, they have um, a file of letters from Charles Stewart relating to the three books he illustrated for them. And as you, he was obviously a complete gentleman, totally courteous, mm. but would monitor absolutely every absolutely detail of every thing. illustration as mm. it was um, as it was as it was sort of going through the whole printing and proofing process well yes i mean mistress masham was a case in point because he nearly didn't take it on because he didn't know any small girls and so he did his research he had <laughs> he to do his research had to do his research but yeah. he did his research in a, a strictly gentlemanly fashion he said to joe our production director I, I'm afraid I, I, you know, perhaps you could find me some research material on small girls. So Joe, who had children at school at that time, went along and asked the headmistress if he could take some photographs. I mean, you'd never be allowed to do it now. <laughs> take some photographs of, 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 of girls, which he did, and he sent them to Giles, who was suitably gratified and said they were very wonderful, unselfconscious photographs. Joe is a very, very good photographer. Um, and fantastic, and that it just so happened that a book had come out which had the right kind of frigate in it, so he, that solved the frigate problem, and that the only other problem remaining was the rats, um, and that he'd written to Rent-A-Kill in Glasgow, and they had sent him quite a lot of brochures and um, things, but unfortunately the brochures were mostly of mice, and rent-a-kill personnel speaking to house owners. <laughs> so, so we had to find him some rat stuff. 
But uh, by then he was launched, and once he was hooked, you, you knew you'd get it in the end. Did you ever see his, his reference collection? Because as well as the sketches mm. that Charles made, and um, we have some of his collection of books in the library here, um, but in the, um, well, in, in, the, in the course of his research for Uncle Silas, he was, mm. so, um, he was so convinced that he had to get the exact style of clothing right um, that he started his own historical co um, costume collection. Um, every single aspect of yeah. Uncle Silas, and obviously the subsequent... Um, illustrated novels as well. He researched to the nth degree. Um, mm -hmm. We've got boxes and boxes yeah. and boxes and boxes of his reference material here. Mm -hmm. Cuttings from magazines, from Country Life, um, all the um, interiors, exteriors, furniture, um, all the tiny elements that made up the illustrations from yeah. Uncle Silas. He absolutely researched. He did, and there's a sort of the appropriately a ghost story attached to Uncle Silas because um, he couldn't, he was trying to discover the house in Uncle Silas, Bartram Howe, is a very, very particular um, mixture, peculiar mixture of classical and um, medieval. And he couldn't find anywhere that sort of fulfilled the, um, the remit. Um, and he eventually settled on a house in Cheshire called Lime, Lime, Lime House, Lime Place. And he used that and then discovered afterwards that Sheridan Lefanu used to go there fairly regularly. So that was probably Sheridan Lefanu's. Um, almost almost yeah, certainly, because certainly. I won't give the plot away for Uncle Silas in case you haven't managed to get through the three volumes. It's rather... It's worth it. It's it worth is worth it. it because it's the most it, sensational it's, last chapter. Exactly. And there's this sort of... There's what's called a locked room mystery, mm. um, and that is absolutely pivotal to the plot. Mm. And that house at Lyme yeah. Park is the only house that, we, that we're aware of that has this particular for, kind of architecture, this funny mixture, but this architectural detail, which is absolutely pivotal to the, to the rather nasty denouement of the novel. Mm. Yes. So, yet Charles found his way to the right house, to the house that you know, Lefano had visited himself. But um, yes, he had, he had all sorts of different ways of doing his research. And mm. one, of, one of some of the anecdotes I came across that were the most interesting related to his artist's model, Rosie. Um, as I say, he was so punctilious about getting all the Victorian clothing right mm. that he got hold of um, Victorian clothing and an artist's model who became his companion, really, for sort of 20, 30 years of his life. Yes, and she. You met went, her. I, I met you Rosie met on Rosie. many occasions, but um, he f he moved eventually. I hadn't realised how long he'd wanted to move. Um, the the estates in Scotland were a terrible burden to him. He he only had them in trust anyway, and they were, you know, it was very very difficult to run them. And when he finally was able to move from Scotland and go to. Um, uh, well, it's a sort of kind of home for retired academics, really, in Scotland, Richie Court. It was mostly full of blue-stocking um, ladies. Um, he was one of four Oxford men, Oxford I think. Tutors. <laughs> many Ox lady yes, Oxford tutors, lady Oxford I think tutors. Made, yeah. But he absolutely loved it. He was desperate to get there. He wanted to, to go there, and he went. And he took Rosie with him. And, of course, it was a much, much smaller space than he'd been used to. Um, but he still managed to fill it with 
the things that you'd expect to see, and it was all beautiful, it was beautifully and exquisitely decorated and looked after. And there was Rosie. And he took me, or when I visited him there, he took me rather naughtily into his very monastic-looking bedroom with um, a single bed, and he opened the ward- wardrobe door, and half of the wardrobe was full of natty tweeds and um, sort of kind of country gentleman's clothes and the other half is full of Rosie's dresses which he said had given the staff there something to think about (laughs) (laughs) and certainly his niece niece Lou um, almost regarded Rosie as as a member of the family and we were quite upset that we couldn't include Rosie um, in the the exhibition but I hope Mm. you notice on your way out there's a really rather marvellous watercolour of her by Charles Mm. in uh, in a very very beautiful, very fetching brown silk dress but um, Charles did lend her out from time mm. to time as well and um, she also has royal connections mm-hmm. uh, Char- uh, Rosie was used by Anne Goni to model the garter robes of, for, the, for the famous portrait of the Queen yeah. so um, she, apparently she got rather snooty after that but, um, <laughs> but she, she can now be found we have found Rosie <laughs> and you can visit her if you have a mind to um, at Kensington Palace um, where she resides um, with her own archive of, of um, oh, supporting documentation, <laughs> which Charles provided. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly because of her royal collection, connections, she, she is now modelling uh, mm-hmm. royal clothing. Um, but um, the curator there is, is, is quite keen to give her an airing mm. and, her, and her story, which is, you know, has dramatic incidents. I believe Charles once had to rescue her from the uh, river behind the house that she was out modelling one of these exquisite dresses either for... He, he, she had a lot of different clothing. He also illustrated um, Pendennis, didn't he? For he the, did. Um, an he American did. Um, mm. fine uh, uh, press, private press. And so we, we have photographs of Rosie in sort of in early, early 19th century gear as well as slightly mm. later 19th century gear. And I think it was when she was modelling for, for Pendennis that she got blown into the river and had to be rescued by Charles. Yes, I mean, the, the, it was constantly being flooded, and you, all his letters were full of, I haven't been able to do anything because we've had three floods and several leaks, and this place, it, the, the, the McArchers couldn't come up with a better script, he said at one point. Uh, when, the dramas. In, well, yeah, I remember one of the things that we haven't talked about at all is deadlines, and um, mm. uh, I, I, <laughs> deadlines and Charles didn't really sort of work, did they? No. On the whole. No, not at all. I think he took, uh, for the... Ghost stories were was nearly ten years um, from the first point of thinking about them to actually getting them getting them out. It was nearly ten years. And how many how many full page illustrations was that? There's, I can't not remember. Not nearly as many it's as Uncle Silas. Si- no, no, many no, no it's Silas. about fourteen. I yes, think. Yes, I was going to say somewhere yes. between ten and fifteen. Yes. Isn't it? yes. But the book jacket, in a way, takes us back to the world of Uncle Silas, doesn't it? Oh, we we have one. Here's one we cunningly prepared earlier, um, which t- which takes us straight back to the ruined abbey um, in Dunfries, in, in Charles' is, own, own village. Yes. So he used he, it for everything. He did, I mean... Sweetheart Abbey, for some reason. Yes. There's a legend. Yes, if anybody knows what it is, yes. we're not... I haven't really researched that one, right one. in yes. Charlesian thoroughness. But, um, but no, I mean, it's, it's fascinating how... I mean, presumably the other illustrators you work with didn't take ten years... To, to, cut, you know, to actually finish, otherwise the Folio Society would have you know, gone out of existence a long time ago. Well, it's true, but it's true, it's true of authors as well. You have to know them, and sometimes when you start, you don't. And 
you can't put, there are people who you can't put too much, un, under too much pressure. I mean, fortunately, we work quite a long way in advance, so um, we can, on the whole, give people as long as they need. But um, some artists, meticulous artists like Neil Packer, who's you know, um, relatively young man who does the most wonderful, I think, illustrations. He did our, our Claudius books, the Robert Graves Claudius books for us, among other things. Um, and he takes ages. So you just have to learn to give them ages. Yes. If you want it. <laughs> and then, of course, there are the ones, you know, people say, oh, well, why don't you do you know, sort of the obvious ones you think that you should be able to illustrate, like um, um, the... Um, Oh, Tolkien, the Tolkien, the Tolkien books. The Tolkien yes. trilogy. Um, because Lord of done, the Rings. You did an edition of that, didn't we you? We did do yeah. an edition of it, but what we, we, we didn't know when we set out was that um, Tolkien didn't want it illustrated. Or at least the only illustrations that he'd ever um, approved of were some pencil sketches made by a Danish art student. And this Danish art student turned out to be Queen Margareta of Denmark, and she'd done them when she was still a student, named Ingehild Grathmer. And um, we were allowed to use them, except that as pencil sketches, they weren't reproducible, you know. So um, we persuaded the estate to allow us to re-engrave them, which Eric Fraser did very, very brilliantly, and thus we, we, we sort of got away with illustrating the book. Um, so and that, for ages, we weren't allowed to say anything. I mean, now it's common knowledge, or it's common knowledge to anybody who reads the um, bibliography. But, um, but then we weren't allowed to say. And there are others as well. I mean, there's um, the Gormenghast, rather, again, rather amazing, was um, we were not allowed to illustrate that with any fi figures. You know, you couldn't, you, you weren't allowed to put any characters in it. You could do halls, you could do buildings, you could do landscapes, but you couldn't do any characters. It's very strange. And was that the estate, presumably? Yeah, it was the estate, yes. Well, one of the things that, that I discovered when I went to Charles' mm. studio was the most extraordinary collection of illustrations for the first two Gormenghast yes, books, which, which are absolutely exquisite. Yeah. And we're hoping that there might be a way... Um, for that project to come to fruition sometime in the future, if his, if, if his um, remaining yes. family will allow it. Um, but um, that they really are quite wonderful. Yeah. But yeah. Charles obviously had a very unconventional attitude to illustration, really, didn't he? I mean, to commissions and illustrations. Yes, I think he, he, he basically he got in a fine frenzy if he felt that there was any outside pressure. And the fact that he'd had... He'd been able to do Uncle Silas in his own time, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, even before uh, the Bodley Head decided they weren't able to reproduce them, he'd done it. Yes. And, and, um, he was, and he was part of the great He wasn't really, really used, wasn't yeah. he? But he, yeah. he was part of that. He, the, the other interesting um, aspect to the collection that we have here of, of all his archives and his working materials mm. is that we can see the cuttings that he'd made from the Radio Times, from magazines, from Dickens novels, um, going all the way back, his, his collection of cuttings about medieval art, illuminated manuscripts. Mm. We can really see the workings of, hi, of, of his of his mind, mm. his artistic sensibility. And um, in, um, in February, on the 9th of February, we're actually going to do a study afternoon looking at the history of black and white book illustration, but we will be using Charles's archive to sort of unlock that. But I know, uh, just to finish up, I know right. you've got the most brilliant quote, Sue, about... What? 
the relationship about publishing illustrated books, the relationship between um, oh, what, author, author and art, artist, artist, which comes back from, back from the Foley Society, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. I mean, it's Char- what Charles Ede wrote right at the beginning. Where he, he said, um, the production of an illustrated book involves a relationship between the author, even if long dead, the artist and the publisher, which can be likened to a ménage à trois, conducted for most of the time on tightropes. <laughs> it's quite a nice summing up of exactly <laughs> anyway if you've got any questions do feel free thanks very much um, we do have a mic at the back so does anyone have any questions yep there's one here we'll just wait for the mic Uh, the pamphlet accompanying the exhibition says that that edition of Uncle Silas will be reprinted by the Folio Society in 2015. Is, is that true? Yes, it is. Um, and the reason we haven't done it before was because we hadn't got the originals and we didn't know where they were. <laughs> this is Charles keeping parts of his life in different compartments. Yes, so so by it was ma- by almost magic. by magic, <laughs> yes, that we... And Amanda and I knew each other from previous publishing experience so that was how we got the act, got our act together really it'll be coming out in june and with any luck it'll be uh, the drawings will be reproduced even more beautifully and carefully than they were in the 1980s yes because it's we're better at it mm. yes i think charles would be pleased yeah If you have trouble with deadlines, do you find you get gaps in your publication? How do you fill the holes? Um, well, the, the, the one that sort of... It's, it's a good point. The one... I mean, normally, because we publish... We used to. I mean, it's all changed a bit now. But we used to publish a prospectus a year in advance. So the prospectus would come out in September for books which... Or August for books which may not be being published until the end of the following year. So you had to be pretty sure that you were going to be able, you were advertising something that would happen. Very, very occasionally we got caught out, and uh, usually for human reasons. And um, one of my authors um, became quite seriously ill, and he rang up in an absolute frenzy and said I can't do this I simply can't work I'm too distracted by how will I feel and by what might happen and tum 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 and um, we were literally poised for that prospectus to go to press with his book in it and I, I went and spent a sleepless night and woke up in the morning thinking this is ridiculous it's only a book you know maybe we can just his book was scheduled for June and we were able to turn around the printed sheet so that it could come out in December. And I simply rang him up and I said, look, um, we've put it in December. You may well be able to, you know, an extra six months may make all the difference. If it doesn't, we simply write to everyone and say it's going to be late or we're going to do it another time. You know, it's not the end of the world and I think one just has to bear that in mind because sometimes it can feel like it. And in a way, it's in the grand 18th century tradition where so many books were published by subscription anyway because um, books were so expensive to produce that you'd have to get your subscribers lined up Mm. sometime in advance so that you you could pay for the printing and the paper. 
Yes, I mean, I think the, the, the publication date of the ghost stories changed at least three times, but fortunately it was early enough for us to be able to kind of shunt it around and put in something else. Or... So how old was Charles when he finished? He must have been well into his 80s then. He was when well he, into his 80s. When he, well, he was, he was 83. Yes, he, yeah. he was. Yes, yes, just about. I think he was, he was 79, 80, and he said his eyesight. We offered him a commission in 2000, which he turned down because he said his eyesight was too poor. And he died in 2001, mm. so... Mm. But I'm sorry, I think it was for a Christmas ghost story, which would have been right up his alley. There's only one, one drawing, but he couldn't do it. I think there was a question at the back. Um, it was really interesting hearing you talk about the number of waistcoat, uh, buttons on a waistcoat yes. and um, <laughs> how particular one may or may not be about that. But thinking from an editorial standpoint about the books as well as the illustrations what's the bound of what is and is not acceptable what's taking liberties with the text that perhaps is something you would turn down or even suggest adjustments well it's a good point I mean it was 37 years to think about it um, I think um, it's such a big it's such a big subject I mean I hope we wouldn't um, one of the, we used to get into trouble because, of course, a lot of the texts that we did were quite um, uh, well, classic and not necessarily politically correct. So there are several ways you can... We did, for example, which was, uh, to me, a very important book because it's one of the few books written about a war situation, the retreat from Moscow, as it happens, um, by somebody who wasn't an officer. Uh, he was a mercenary. Memoirs of Sergeant, Sergeant Borgoyne. And there are quite a lot of remarks in it which we would not find acceptable. Now, you either cut them out, which I think I'm against bowdlerizing um, or, or cutting things or editing, you know, for our time, or you write, you include an introduction which addresses it. So I think that's the, um, would be our answer most things is if you want to publish the book you address it. I mean I think there are, for example, Buchan is quite full of um, remarks we probably wouldn't make now, um, but we do Buchan. I'd probably draw the line at Dornford Yates. So you just, but we didn't have to do anything we didn't want. I mean actually it was a perfect publishing job I can tell you. Because when I went there we just really flew by the seat of our pants and published what we liked. And the idea was to get a package of books together which added up to more than the sum of their parts. So it could include auditors, it could include something funny, it could include um, crime, it could include popular things, but it also included really, really solid um, classics, some of them quite neglected. And because you presented them all at once and said, all these books are worth reading, people did. Very nice. Can't say fairer than that. Yeah. I had a lovely time. Are there any final questions? Okay. 
Well, before thanking today's guests, um, the exhibition is open until the 15th of February. Um, Amanda will be in the exhibition space following today's lecture, so if you have any informal questions, please do go ahead and ask her. Um, as Amanda said, we do have an event on Monday the 9th of February um, where guests can go behind the scene and explore 250 years of the RA's black and white um, book collection. It's a very special event. I do hope some of you can make it. Information is on our website, in our magazine and in our What's On Fly, which is downstairs. Um, but without further ado, please join me in thanking Sue Bradbury and Amanda Jane Doran. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.